Elite finale is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now here are the two guys who are going to be practicing some chair yoga for about the next 90 minutes or so. I'm Rob Sister, and here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, season three is over. It's over. I'm ready to do the, what is it, the happy cat pose? I, I like that one. Yeah, and the chair yoga. Uh, oh, is this cow. microphone on? Yes. Cat cow? Is, yes. this, is microphone this microphone on? on? Is this on? Yeah, this is, uh, this is not good. Hot mic. We got to be careful Hot about mic. that. It's like a naked, gu- a naked gun moment. Hot Chuck also. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Chuck Roast. <laughs> Chuck Roast. Ouch. So, Too soon. Too yeah, soon. well, you did predict that you thought this was going to be the end of Chuck. Uh, certainly in an ambiguous manner, uh, Chuck looks pretty bad right now. Yeah, was there a dumpster in his uh, house that he could hide under? That I'm not sure, but uh, certainly leaves it uh, leaves it wanting. Make, makes me feel like we have perhaps seen the last of Chuck McGill in our current timeline. That doesn't mean we won't see Chuck McGill on the show, but I think this might be the end for Chuck. So a lot to unpack in a interesting hour uh, or so of the uh, Better Call Saul, where Jimmy then ultimately ended up uh, trying to uh, mend fences with Chuck. Uh, Chuck kind of told him off. Chuck looked like he was doing great and then uh, did like a 180 nosedive to the point where we had uh, that very dramatic scene of him tearing his house apart. And then he, in that final scene uh it's a you know very very dark potential ending for chuck and so uh, a lot to talk through with uh kim also in her recuperation from the uh car accident from last week but first antonio how are you doing i'm doing i'm doing well i'm i'm excited to talk about this episode with you i think we'll do our full season thoughts and analysis in a different podcast uh not breaking news are happening now but uh but i'm excited to talk no, break about this. it break it yeah. because uh, we're going to come back next week and do a feedback show so get your yes. questions into us bcs at postshowrecaps.com or you can leave us a voicemail postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail and uh we will talk all of season three and any of the uh news that comes out we are still waiting to to hear anything about a renewal for Better Call Saul. So uh, in the next couple of days, there may be more Better Call Saul news that breaks. So uh, we will get together in about one week's time for that and hear what you guys had to say about this season and this finale. Yeah, it'll be good for us to do that because I'm sure that Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan will be out working the circuit and talking about the show. They were on uh, Talking Saul last night, uh, everyone's favorite gerund noun mm-hmm. post show that isn't uh, post show recaps. So they were talking that Peter Gold was there. I watched that, but I'm sure they'll be out in the circuit doing interviews and talking about the season as a whole and what their thoughts are to come. And we don't have all that information currently available as we record this podcast. So we'll come back and do a feedback show, but we definitely are interested in your thoughts on the season in general uh, and uh, and just really what you think about where Better Call Saul goes from here. Rob, we're still in 2003. Breaking Bad starts in 2008. Mm-hmm. So I think we have room for a time jump. There's a lot to talk about. So we'll save that for our feedback show. But this finale, it, it had a lot of difficult work to do, I think, because the, the real true climax of the season for me was chicanery, was Chuck's trial. Uh, that was the payoff of 
everything that happened with the tape uh, that had been continuing on from the previous season and all the stuff with Mesa Verde and how that all built up into this face-off between Chuck and Jimmy. And then the last five episodes of this season almost feels like we, we, were, we were saying goodbye to Chuck, but the rest of it was really moving some pieces around so that we could get the next season started. So I think this finale had some difficult work to do. We saw some of our characters. We didn't see all of them. Uh, I'm sure we're going to hear from Mike in this podcast. Uh, not so happy to not be included on the finale or perhaps quite pleased to not have to do anything but yeah but it was a fire my agent after that one oh boy (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe maybe mike was out building another playground and maybe he went on a weekend trip with anita we don't know where mike was but a lot to talk about for sure can't believe we had a mike free finale of season three and we we talked about on the podcast last week about how mike's character really has had nothing to do and then i expected okay well maybe he'll have a big finale because he was only in one scene in episode nine but really coming down the stretch here in season three I mean, Mike has really just been cast aside. The show has no idea what to do with him. Yeah, and obviously with Jimmy McGill perhaps going into uh, legal practice uh, it, that is less uh, less elder and more criminal focus, we have an opportunity to see Mike Moore in seasons to come. But we, and we'll talk about that in our feedback podcast. But yeah, it's weird that there really was no, there was no climactic, there was no character arc for Mike this season, really. Uh, he, had, he had some growth. He had this stuff with Anita and that I think caused him to pivot back a little bit with, uh, with Pride and Nacho, and there was also the, the the matter of the body in the desert, and I think him still carrying guilt around for that. But his biggest stuff from the season was meeting Gus Fring and then getting involved with Gus, but we haven't really seen that bear any fruit, and we certainly didn't see that in the finale. I mean, they couldn't have gotten me in there with Hector and Gus and Nacho. <laughs> it would have been a good fit. It would have been a good fit. Like it would have been a perfect opportunity for I mean, Mike to what show am I, up. Chopped liver over here. Yeah, this or is olive a, loaf. Yeah, pimento. pimento this is loaf. A, yeah, this is something where it does make sense that he wasn't like Salamanca hates him. He can't know that he's working with Gus, but he could have been there in the wings. He could have been there uh, on the background. Like he could have been there waiting to see if it blew up and he needed to be part of something. So who knows? Uh, maybe Jonathan Banks was on a vacation. Maybe, maybe. All right, uh, let's start with Chuck. Is Chuck yeah. dead? Is there any? Was there any wiggle room? Ah, was there any wiggle room? Uh, well, it depends on if Wanda shows up and starts singing. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think Chuck is dead. Do you think Chuck is dead? I think Chuck is dead. I think we had Chuck's send-off episode here yes. with Jimmy and Howard. I think Chuck is dead, and barring that the writers want to come back in season four and do something completely different, everything in the episode treated this as if Chuck was dead, including right after the episode, a card came up for National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So to me, I don't think that you give us that. I mean, Antonio, no prestige drama would make you think a character committed suicide and then treat it like a suicide and then only, uh, you know, change their minds about that uh, right after. Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. I hope not. <laughs> uh, especially not an AMC. AMC, are they known for character deaths that aren't really deaths that are cliffhangers? I don't know. Uh, but I'm just continuing well, to throw shit at the walking story. dead, obviously. That's yeah. No, I, I don't think that they treated it like it was a fake out. And I agree. The, in the talking Saul, uh, nobody on that show was talking about it like it was like there was ambiguity. 
Yeah, and I don't. I just don't think that there was. We don't see him die on screen, but do we really need to see that happen? Do we that? The, you talk about dark. It was dark to begin with, uh, with watching him with the lantern, kicking it over onto a pile of papers so that maybe his death doesn't look like a suicide. Uh, and by burning the house down, he covers up the perhaps the the madness. I'm not sure. But uh, it, it read like a clear suicide to me. He'd covered himself in his space blanket. Yeah. Well, that, I hadn't thought about it that way in terms of uh, what Chuck is trying to do to himself. But is that what you feel like that Chuck was going for? This idea, again, of, hey, if you can make it look like an accident, then nobody has to be burdened with the fact that you committed suicide and the fact that there was something wrong with you. People could just chalk it up to, oh, I guess that uh, must have been that lantern on the uh, stack of newspapers. Yeah, I mean that's that that would be how I would read it. Or or just not even that. Like depending on how bad the fire is and we don't know, but he's got papers everywhere in the house and he's ripped apart insulation and already done a lot of the work. I just don't know if that if that does the fire department show up in 5 minutes? Do they stop it? But I do think that if the whole house burns down, obviously the evidence of his madness coming back is gone. So that is that is certainly an element of it. Uh I do think he was trying to make it look like an accident by putting it on the edge of the desk and kicking it off because otherwise he could have just started the fire. Like there's no reason for him to do it otherwise uh, than, than the way he did. He did it specifically, I think, so that it would look like an accident. And whether I, whether or not he left a note, I think all of these things are going to come into the story because he's in a situation where he is owed $9 million. We don't know who his beneficiary would be, uh, whether it's Jimmy, whether it's uh, whether some money is coming to Rebecca in the divorce. Uh, we just don't know all of those details, but this is not a death of someone that will go unnoticed. Uh, and it's certainly not one that will go unfelt by our characters. There are going to be major consequences here. So whether it's a suicide or not, I think does impact a lot of things like whether the insurance will pay out uh, and things like that. So I guess it just all remains to be seen how that will play out. They gave themselves a lot to write for sure by ending this character this way. As I said, throughout the season, I felt like this has been coming all along um, with chicanery and just with what happened with Chuck at the copy shop. It just felt like whatever his next slip or whatever his next blow up because of his disease was going to be, it had to be worse than what happened before. And I think this is what worse looks like. As you talked about, we got that awful but yet incredible scene that was very, very, very reminiscent of the great Francis Coppola film, The Conversation with Gene Hackman, mm -hmm. where Chuck just rips his apart or his house apart looking for electricity, looking for the source. Uh, and I just think that that is as big of a slip as you can get. And then he took it one step further and, and did the lantern stuff. So there was the lantern tie in at the beginning of the episode. There was Chuck being applauded off and disappearing into the light uh, from HHM. He had some awful final words with Jimmy. We'll talk about all of that, I'm sure. Okay, so what do you think was the genesis of this setback for uh, Chuck in this episode? Because it did feel like in the first half hour, everything was going his way, or not necessarily going his way, but he was getting this settlement money from HHM. He had all the lights on. He had the refrigerator on at his house. Jimmy came over. He was almost like like indignant of I'm fine. You see, I'm fine. I, you know, I really I don't need anything from you. You know, why do you even act like you care about me? You're really not that big of a deal for me. Just leave me alone. Yeah, I love the idea 
that all of this episode and what we're seeing from Chuck and Jimmy in this episode is the consequences of victory. Whether it's Pyrrhic victory or whether it's victory, the, the, uh, you know, the unintended consequences of victory, Howard says to Chuck, you won, and gives him the check and, 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 get, and basically fires him. And it seems like before that happens, Chuck was just like, okay, you've acknowledged me. Now I'd like to shake your hand and let this all go away. And it's like, well, buddy, no, too late. That horse is out of the barn. Uh, the you're you're done. Like that that you wronged Howard, and he's not going to forget that. We can't make this up with the handshake. And I think Chuck was very taken aback by that. And then, of course, there's the consequence of him, quote unquote, winning with Jimmy. Yes, he got Jimmy in trouble with the bar. But at what cost? He lost his brother as a person who cares about him. He lost that relationship. It put him in a position where he lost everything that he had with HHM. So what we're seeing with Chuck is the consequences of of his victories. And unfortunately, I think it's hard for us as an audience to see past this. Uh, A lot of this is probably down to his mental illness. Uh, and yet we just, I think, will see him as a villain, and I think we're right to do so. But all of these things are, are part and parcel to what was going on in Chuck McGill's brain. To understand, as Jimmy puts it in chicanery, to understand these actions, we have to understand Chuck McGill. And I just think that he really didn't understand the consequences of everything that he was doing. He has It's this reality distortion field around Chuck where he's just so sure he's right about everything. And when it doesn't play out the way it is, he has nothing to hang his hat on. He's brilliant. He is a man whose brain makes his life. And when his brain fails him, he has nothing else to fall back on. So I think that's, that's a huge part of what caused this. It's really a culmination. That's why I felt like it was coming, because it felt very much in keeping with this arc of Chuck where... Where he's losing everything gradually, piece by piece, because of his problems. And this seemed to be the, the final representation of it. I think the Howard thing was really the last straw, for sure. Do you think that there was a parallel between the conversation that he has with Howard and the conversation that he has with Jimmy, where, to me, I almost feel like, looking back, that Howard was kind of the Chuck in that conversation, where, you know, uh, Chuck was saying, like, hey, you know, shake my hand, let's make this right, let's just let, we don't have to let this be the end of us, and Howard was sort of like, yeah, I'm good, here, here's the lengths that I'm willing to go through to get you out of my life. You're really not that big of a deal to me. And here is this money, please just go away. And how quickly he was able to sort of just like push him out the door. And then on the other hand, here comes Jimmy to go and talk to Chuck and try to make things right. And then Chuck is sort of on the other side of that table and in that position to say, yeah, you know what? You're really not that big of a deal to me. And why don't you just get out of my life? It's a great observation. I I do think that that is uh, that there are parallels there. And I think that it is very much it's funny because I came away from those conversations thinking, wow, the person with maybe the highest road on the whole show is Howard. It And maybe not higher than Kim. We'll talk about where Kim is and what her situation is. But Howard seemed very valid in everything he said. I didn't feel that way about what Chuck said to Jimmy. I thought that what Chuck said to Jimmy was way more hurtful and way more intended to hurt and way more lack of consideration of consequences. With Howard, I think Howard was basically saying, 
listen, I tried to be compassionate and caring and show you empathy. I tried to help you. I tried to do all of these things for you. And this was your response. You sued me and we can't fix this. And I think in that regard, Howard is very similar to Jimmy uh, and, and Chuck is on the same side of both of those things. So I do think there are parallels. Uh, and I think all characters in Chuck and Jimmy, I think Chuck and Jimmy are occupying similar spaces in both conversations or want to. Um, but I think that that speaks to the similarities of Chuck and Jimmy. We've talked about how Jimmy begged Chuck to slip, to get down in the mud and roll around with him, to be like him. And then we saw Chuck do that. And now we see what that looks like with someone like Howard, who just has no time for that and who really thinks, you know what, you wronged me. And whether or not Chuck feels guilty about that, the way he tells Jimmy not to feel guilty about everything that Jimmy has done and to just let it go and to not cry about it. You are a bad person. Just be bad and don't feel guilty. He's basically telling Jimmy to break fully back. Bad. And I, I don't know if Chuck feels bad about Howard, but like I said, it certainly feels like that is the case, that Chuck is not taking his own advice. And maybe what happened with Howard is what ultimately pushes him over the edge. I really feel like that Chuck had this foolproof plan where, OK, I'm going to sue them for an amount of money that I know they don't have and he'll have no other choice but to take me back. But Chuck never sees it coming that Hamlin is going to go into his personal personal money and ultimately like uh, whatever he has to do to, uh, you know, uh, put, uh, you know, sell his house or any anything to come up with this money just to get rid of Chuck. I think that that is, uh, you know, uh, the most hurtful thing that could happen to him of you're not needed here. You know, you've put so much time and investment into being this lawyer and we would do almost Howard would do almost anything to not have him be a part of this anymore. Yeah, and that that is obviously whether or not Chuck believed it when he told Jimmy, you never mattered all that much to me. That is very different from the pitch that Howard makes, where Howard says 17 years like and he says, you mentored me. You did this. We did that. We built this. We did that. And that's in private with Chuck. He has. If you're talking about comparing the conversations, Howard is basically saying you always mattered to me. And therefore, it hurt very much when you did this. Because you mattered so much to me that when you did this thing to me, it hurt really, really, really badly. So much so that I don't look at it as just business. It's so personal that I will go into my personal funds and I will do this just to get you away from the firm. And I think that that is a, that's a little bit of a contrast to what Chuck tells Jimmy, which is that nothing personal, you just never mattered to me. And I think that that, well, I think Chuck was lying, of course, whether he was lying to himself or lying to Jimmy, but I think that the two conversations are very different. Uh, and yet I think that they're going to cause the same amount of harm. I think it caused Chuck a ton of harm to hear that from Howard, that you mattered so much to me that when you violated this, it was, it was done. Like we were done. So, so done that I'm willing to go very deep into my own pocket to put this right and then chuck to jimmy says you didn't matter to me at all so i think that that had to really really wound chuck to know that it wasn't a business thing this was a very much a personal thing uh, and you're right i think chuck thought he had the world by the balls i think he thought well i've got him i'll just sue them for an amount that i know they can't pay and then he'll just shake my hand and it'll be all done and he'll just welcome me back with open arms and when he realized that he pushed it too far, I do think it was exactly what he told Jimmy not to carry around, the guilt of his actions that pushed him over the edge. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting to tie it back to uh, the other side of that where Chuck is saying, like, uh, just don't feel bad. Don't have that remorse. Uh, You're going to do it again. Yeah, it's always easier to give someone else advice, right, than it is to take the advice for yourself. That certainly seems to be the way. And Chuck was able to say to Jimmy exactly what Chuck needed to do with Howard, but it just didn't play out. Or maybe Chuck realized that if if he did that with Howard, if he shut it off, then he was no better than Jimmy. And maybe that's why he took his own life. So I want to talk about why Chuck has this relapse ultimately, because he's doing really great at the beginning of the episode. And uh, he didn't know Jimmy was coming over. He's living in the house with the electricity on. And we see him wake up in the middle of the night one night. And he sort of is, uh, you know, having a little bit of a hard time. He's taking some of his medication. You see him go back to the journal or like uh, like calling things out. And then the next day he ends up just completely having going into this tailspin over. He turns off all of the breakers and something is still drawing power. And he just completely destroys his house trying to uh, figure out what it is as he sort of like descends into this madness. Antonio, were you able to put your finger on exactly what it was that sent him into this spiral? No, it is interesting, as you point out, that he goes to sleep and he wakes up uh, and he writes in his journal. That is this, the scene that follows directly after the Jimmy scene. So it does seem to flow in a natural line. The Howard stuff really upsets him. He tries to get past it. He has the conversation with Jimmy and, quote, unquote, everything's fine. But as soon as Jimmy walks out, he has this look like, oh, I got to this was that was a lot like I I'm not sure like if I can if I can continue to live this life and continue to pretend he he uh, he wakes up and he's saying like, oh, yellow comforter, brown journal, green glass, whatever. But he's already back to that. And. I don't know. It's possible that the Jimmy thing is the direct trigger. It's possible that the Jimmy conversation reminded him of the Howard conversation, and that's the direct trigger. It's also just possible that you cannot fix a problem like this overnight. And whether or not there was or was not a direct trigger, of course, if Howard, if, if Chuck is dead, Jimmy is going to feel responsible. Howard is going to feel responsible. Kim is going to feel responsible. All of these people are going to feel like it was their actions that caused this. But the truth is, this is a mentally ill person. He was on a course of drugs. He called and canceled his doctor's appointment, which perhaps could have reeled him back in. Uh, this He thought he was smart enough to beat a brain disease, and it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And so I don't know if there is a direct cause. I don't know that we can determine the direct cause. And I think the ambiguity of the direct cause is something that a lot of these characters will feast on in the seasons to come. His journal, if I don't know if you've got a look at the drugs he was on. I did he not. Was on a lot of, he was on a lot of drugs that can cause problems. Uh, he was on things that are probably a, a, a course of treatment for OCD or for manic conditions. Uh, I, I saw like a, like a, some, I saw, I think, clonopin in there, uh, not by its proper name, but I think it was uh, clonazepam or whatever. Uh, I saw, like, I just saw drugs that I have seen or read about uh, and I know about. Uh, and I just think that it's always possible that when you're on a course of drugs like that, there can for sure be side effects. And they don't always happen with older people, normally drugs like that that are SSRIs or antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs have really negative side effects on younger people and not older people. But uh, these drugs do cause these uh, these side effects. They can cause you to swing in the other direction and take your own life. So that could be part of it as well. We just don't really know. It's mental illness. And the answer is we don't always have the answer. I think that the 
part of the problem for Chuck why he ultimately goes in this direction and not that we can ever you know know for sure but the fact that he woke up and was feeling this way, and I'm not sure exactly what the cause was, probably uh, after getting into this uh, with Jimmy, but that he couldn't fix this. He felt like that he was going through everything they told him, and uh, he was uh, making so much progress, but then when he has this setback, and he can't figure out what it is, and it's uh, sort of two things of like, what is making the meter turn and then also you know why does he still feel the way that he feels when he's done all of this and with nothing really to go on doing with no you know ability to get back to working in law like he wants to whether it's at HHM or you know in a private practice now that his uh, malpractice insurance is uh, now a, a problem he just can't figure out any reason to go on and I think he doesn't want to suffer anymore with this. Yeah, uh, that's a. It's very, it's very persuasive. And like I said, with a with a brain disease like that, you, we've talked about how Chuck, he has built and staked his career on the power of his mind and the power of his brain. That's his legacy. That's he doesn't have children. He doesn't. He hasn't written as Howard was encouraging him to do uh, the great book on uh, whatever it was, uh, the Commerce Clause. He hasn't done all these things. Uh, his power and his his real strength is his brain. And when that fails him, when that is something he can't control, I think for a guy like that, that's uh, that's he's lo- he's lost his his sheer power. And as you as you're right, he has no corner to turn to. Keep in mind when we were flagging. Chuck potentially meeting an untimely demise in this season a few episodes ago when he was telling the doctor, he he was telling her, I want this place to be full of music. I want all my friends to be here. I want to have a huge party. And then he's quote unquote better and he doesn't have anyone to come. He has no one. He's alienated Howard. He's alienated Jimmy. He has no one there to look in or care about him. Uh, Rebecca is gone. So he wanted this thing that wasn't attainable in, in part because of the things that had happened with him. So he wasn't getting that. I don't think that his quote unquote recovery made him as happy as it should have. I think the Howard and Jimmy double barrel was a real problem for him. I don't know. I The scene with Jimmy, he really did play it pretty straight in that he seemed completely unaffected by it. He was playing like, you don't bother me at all. The fact that you're here, I don't care. Like, go away. I, I'd respect you more if you were just a bad person uh, and all of that. Uh, I, don't, I just don't know what he... That's the only part of it that feels like we're going to see Michael McKean on this show again, whether or not we see Chuck alive in the current timeline. I just do feel like there is still a little bit to be mined with the relationship with the McGill brothers in terms of what caused the animus, what was their their true closeness? Was it did Chuck ever love Jimmy? Did he ever care about him in any way? If he never did, then I don't see how this conversation with Jimmy is what pushed him over the edge. And I just don't know that we've ever seen that Chuck really, really, truly loved or cared about Jimmy. All he really wanted to do was keep Jimmy under his thumb in the mailroom in Albuquerque. That's really what he wanted to do. And I just don't know past that if he ever really loved him, uh, except for maybe when they were 
were kids reading in a tent. Well, let's talk about the significance of that scene that we opened the episode with, where they're out there in the tent. The episode is named Lantern. I think uh, much more for the significance that the lantern plays in burning down Chuck's house. But we do get sort of like a close up on the lantern there. The book they are reading is that same book, Mabel, which is referenced in the uh, top of the season premiere episode of season three. So it seems like that there was this trajectory that we're on. But why give us that scene in this episode? Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I, for me, it felt like in the moment uh, premonition. Like, there's the camping lantern. The episode's called Lantern. They're reading this book as children, and it's Chuck looking, instructing young Jimmy and telling him, just listen and pay attention and do this and do that. And it was a very, very short scene, uh, but maybe that's the nicest we've ever seen Chuck uh, as a character being to Jimmy. I I think that that certainly seems to track. We did get Chuck bailing Jimmy out of the Chicago sunroof incident, so that was certainly a thing that Chuck did for Jimmy. But generally speaking... It felt like we were framing the episode by, as you point out, starting with the book from the season premiere. In that season premiere, when Jimmy brings up the book, it's right after everything with the tape. And Jimmy has admitted that he he committed a felony, and he's admitting it because he feels bad for Chuck. And the thing is, Chuck knew that Jimmy felt bad for him, and that's why he manipulated Jimmy in that way. So after that Jimmy walks out. He makes a phone call to Howard like Chuck's not retiring. He comes back in. Chuck is already taking the stuff down off the walls. Jimmy starts to help him. We have the thing with the tape and the thumbs and all of that. Jimmy finds the book about Mabel, and Jimmy wants to reminisce with Chuck. He wants to be friendly with Chuck, and Chuck cuts him off. And Chuck says, there will be consequences for your actions now, Jimmy. This is not something where we can just go back to normal. Uh, So it is a thing where we the the only other time we heard about that book, Jimmy wanted to be nice to Chuck and talk to him and reminisce about when they were kids and they would read the book. And Chuck wanted no part of it. He started down that path. He started by saying he remembered one of the characters' names. And Jimmy was like, wow, you're crazy, Chuck. Like, can't believe you remembered that. And, And Jimmy wanted to talk to his brother. And Chuck... Chuck drew the line right then and there and said, basically, like, we're not going to do this. We're not going to have this kind of relationship. You hurt me. And that's that. So I I think bringing it back and centering it there reminded us this relationship maybe wasn't always bad. And there was a time when Chuck wanted to do these things, but we're not there now for sure. Uh, But I'm interested to, to ask you. We had that scene pre-credits. It's a cold open. We see the credits rolling throughout the beginning of the episode. We have scenes with Kim. We have scenes with Jimmy. The credits are rolling the whole time. Then we get to Chuck in the boardroom with all of the HHM board. And Chuck is basically saying to Howard, like, shake my hand and this will go away. The credits are still rolling. Then everyone leaves the room and the credits stop rolling. And Chuck and and Howard have their conversation. Then Howard brings Chuck out to the, the terrace uh, and everybody applauds Chuck off. No credits. Then we go into the next Jimmy scene and the credits start again. It's almost like I don't know why the credits stopped during this great scene with Chuck. Uh, Colin Stone uh, observed this as well and we were talking about it. I don't know if they move scenes around or if they intended for that to be Chuck's great goodbye scene so they didn't want credits under it but I thought that that was interesting that they were they were making some conscious choices about about I think maybe about Chuck's exit and about how to best prepare us for that throughout the course of this episode. And I think that first scene in the, with the lantern was part and parcel to that. I think it really was to set up everything that happened after. Yeah. So you feel like that they didn't want to run credits over Chuck walking out of HHM? 
Yeah, and so I just think that a lot of how this episode was structured right. was to ultimately set up Chuck's uh, final scene with the lantern. And so I think that the first scene with the lantern was there in part to set that in motion and to really get that going. And it certainly bookends with the final scene with the lantern as well. Here's the lantern in a positive light when everything was good between these two brothers. Here's the lantern in a very negative light when everything has fallen apart between these two brothers. So I think the whole episode was structured to get the max payoff at the end there. So let's talk about what's going on with Jimmy in this episode, because after last week's episode, I think that we both felt like that, okay, he's on this trajectory. He hurt these uh, senior citizens that were nothing but kind to him. We are now one step closer to Saul Goodman. But I felt like that Jimmy's actions in this week ultimately and he, like, uh, I guess, uh, had a setback of his own on uh, this free fall that he's in. And I thought he sort of righted the ship. Me too. Uh, were you, when you look at that, when you look at where we are with Jimmy McGill, uh, and we, when you look at the way that that played out over the course of this season and how this played out in the finale episode, are you satisfied with this being the end of the season for Jimmy McGill? Uh, he ends up back uh, where he was, as you point out. Yeah, he's not. He's taken some hits. I mean, there, he's certainly taken some L's throughout the course of this season. There's zero question about it. But he still has his humanity about him. And maybe that'll change if, if, if Chuck is gone and he does feel responsible. Certainly that would be a, a change, especially with Chuck's last words. But it really felt like there wasn't much uh, of a change in Jimmy McGill this season. We saw some hints of Saul, but we didn't really see him. By the end of this episode, he's like a Boy Scout again. So I don't know. I was left very unsatisfied by what happened with Jimmy in this episode. Were you? Did you feel like this was a bit of a letdown? I will add to what you're saying, and I'm going to lump Kim in there also, because I felt like that all through season three, we sort of just increased the pressure and made it, okay, we're going to push Jimmy down this path. Think here goes Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy going down to this uh, dark place where ultimately culminates in this sandpiper uh, manipulation in episode nine. And then Kim is also continuing in one direction, ultimately getting into the this car accident. And then I felt like for both of them, they had a complete 180 from the direction that they were headed in this entire season. Right. And as we said, the, the fallout from Chuck could change that. For sure. And what we could see is that, that they'll get the fertile, uh, that it, the, the ground is completely fertilized by everything we saw this season. All the BS that flew down is good fertilizer for what happens with uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy and Kim going forward. Uh, because throughout the season, we saw this arc between Jimmy and Kim where what happened with Chuck, uh, what happened with Chuck and Jimmy was a major problem for the two of them. It made Jimmy more sour. It made Kim more sour. It made Kim sour on on Jimmy. We just saw a lot of negative energy flowing from that. And it seems like we've course corrected in this finale where a bad thing happened to Kim and that changed both of their outlooks completely. Kim is less of a workaholic. She's less concerned about Jimmy. Jimmy is less concerned about keeping the thing together. Uh, Jimmy is even going to cast the Sandpiper lawsuit aside. And so then he's not going to be forced to perhaps uh, come up with this office money, but he's not going to have any other money coming in either. So I just was was really let down uh, by both the Jimmy and Kim story completely uh, in this finale. I wonder, do you think it would have been better uh, or do you think they would have got more mileage in this season in a finale where all the incidents that we saw between Jimmy and Kim 
happen in episode nine. Maybe this episode is episode nine. This is why they kill characters often in the penultimate episode of a season rather than the final episode of a season, because we do want to see the resolution or the falling action or whatever you want to call it after that big climactic incident. And it feels like instead we got the climactic incident with Kim in the car, but the resolution was she's she's better than she ever was this entire season. Uh, and the same goes for Jimmy. So I really, I'm just a little down on that. I feel like we need one more episode in this finale where they find, after the finale, where they find out about what happened with Chuck and how that impacts them. And yeah, that makes me interested in watching the next season, but I was already in Rob. Like, I just don't feel that this was a, this was a, a, a good bow for the, the final uh, arc of the season for Jimmy and Kim, both of them. I completely agree with you. Well, let's keep it localized to Jimmy for now. So he ends up not feeling good about the Sandpiper settlement. And because Irene's friends don't like her anymore, he is going to basically give up this million dollars that he has coming to him from Sandpiper. And he ends up concocting this whole plan where he's going to come in and be the chair yoga teacher. And then ultimately with a hot mic, he's going to, uh, you know, the jig is going to be up, which is ultimately going to cast that settlement into doubt. Now, Antonio, is Jimmy having a guilty conscience and a big heart about this? What is ultimately going to put him into dire straits now at the top of season four, where he's not going to have any money coming in, where he still can't practice law and he isn't going to get that settlement. And then he's going to have to try to be really creative uh, with this Saul Goodman character to try to earn some money. Yeah, that uh, could be. Uh, he's not going to be as desperate or as hard up. I don't know what his bank situation is right now. But I mean, this is a guy who can go work anywhere for a year now and just pay his bills, whatever his bills are. He doesn't need to go start a career or try to keep his legal practice going in some way, shape or form. He already got rid of his ads. So that part where he has any expenses are done. The office seems to be going going gone. He is looking for a tenant. I think we could get some mileage out of that where he's trying different people in that office. I guess there's a possibility that could bring him into the seedier realm, if you will. Uh, since somebody's looking to sublet the office, is it going to be somebody like that vet maybe uh, or somebody associated with that kind of person who has a little more nefarious purpose for what's going on? Is that going to drag Jimmy in, this need to lease the office? There's a possibility there. Uh, but it, it seems like he's actually cleaned his plate and he's actually in a better position now than he was was when he had all of the pressure to do all of these things. The pressure's completely gone. He's realized that sustaining the office is a fool's errand and that therein lies madness, that that doing that is what's causing him problems and will continue to do so. So it seems more like he's got more of a blank slate. What did you make, though? He, Chuck basically tells Jimmy, like, you need to just stop feeling bad. You're always going to hurt people. You're not going to change your behavior. Your behavior is going to cause damage. The only way you can feel better is if you don't care about the damage that you're causing. And my question for you is, do you feel like Jimmy then took that advice throughout the course of this episode? Or was it the fact that Jimmy felt bad what led him to do what he did with the chair yoga and with Aaron from a Davison Maine? No, I think it's definitely that he feels bad. I mean, if he could have followed Chuck's advice, I think that he would have ultimately just been happier where Chuck is saying like, hey, that's who you are. You hurt people. What's the big deal? Don't feel bad about it. Don't have this situation where you have to have like this fake remorse and walk around with your 
head hung low. You just screw people over and just live with it. Yeah, Chuck is telling him, be Saul Goodman. Be the guy that we know from Breaking Bad as an audience. Like, Be the guy who doesn't seem to have the moral uh, concern about sending someone to Belize uh, or doing things like that. Be that guy. Don't be the guy that you are. Get rid of your humanity is what Chuck is telling Jimmy to do. He says, I'd have more respect for you if you did it. And yet we don't see Jimmy do that in this episode. And it feels to me, at least, like the fact that Jimmy has humanity is what enables him to get rid of a lot of the things that were causing him to be less human. Uh, that he his humanity is ultimately what gets rid of the office, that gets it causes him to right the ship with Irene. He's not going to, I think, need the pressure, therefore, to find money and to do these things like Slip and Jimmy. But it feels like the character of Jimmy McGill is a guy who is always going to be looking for that action and it just feels like chuck is right his behavior is never going to change and i i think that if there's anything we've seen from jimmy mcgill in three seasons of the show that is one of the things i think they've made abundantly clear no matter what circumstance you put him in no matter how much you try jimmy's going to always be a little bit bent he's always going to be a little crooked he's always going to be the kind of person that is open to being a little more malleable with morals and the truth and that behavior will cause damage and harm to people it just is inevitable that it happens and in season one i think we saw the more positive angles of it yeah he runs this crazy caper to find out where the kettlemans are hiding their money but he gives the money back and he gets the client back to kim he doesn't benefit from that in any way except for positively uh at the beginning of the series we see him trying to run a slip and fall game to get the kettlemans as clients and that one certainly goes out of control we get some broken legs on some twins there Uh, that's a bad deal so we have seen this from jimmy mcgill throughout he's not going to change his behavior Uh, i think chuck is telling him don't feel bad but here i think the fact that he felt bad actually probably made things better for him in the short term. I think if Chuck had stayed healthy, not killed himself, not said, hey, uh, you know, you never mattered all that much to me. I think this is a Jimmy McGill who going into season four, I'd say, was poised to do good and was poised to try to find a way to make his uh, crooked con man personality work in this crazy world in a positive way. But now with the Chuck thing hanging over him, I just don't see how that ends well. Now, do you think that tying up some of these loose ends uh, with Jimmy and with Cam and then ultimately uh, with uh, Chuck uh, in terms of what could possibly be happening with him. Are we set up for a time jump here, Antonio? Could we move forward uh, a year in this timeline at the start of season four? The only reason I would say no is I feel the death of Chuck. We need to see the immediate aftermath. I do think we could see a time jump in season four. But I don't know that we're going to see it right away uh, because I really don't think we should come six months after Chuck died. I I don't think that's the most fertile uh, writing premise. I think they're going to get a lot more mileage from these characters out of the immediate aftermath, out of confrontations between Jimmy and Howard and Kim and Howard at Chuck's funeral or wake. Uh, Jimmy feeling personally responsible and how that makes him treat Kim, how that makes Kim treat Jimmy. I don't necessarily want to see that six months out because I felt like I feel like we have missed the most emotional grist of those interactions if we shift ahead. But I think we could shift ahead mid-season or even in the context of like after the first episode, uh, the way a show like Fargo did in the first season. Uh, I think we could get past that and then time jump. I do think we could see a time jump. We're, we're going to need to see a time jump at some point. And I, we'll get into, I think, that on our on our feedback show uh, in more detail about what the what the real benefit of that may be and how that may allow them to finish the arc of the show. But 
but I just don't want to see that at the beginning of the next episode because I really am more interested in the immediate aftermath and fallout from what happened with Chuck. Do you think that Jimmy will blame himself so much for what happened to Chuck? I mean, didn't he do everything in his power to try to help Chuck? And the last time that he saw him, ultimately he'll be hurt, I think, by what Chuck said to him. But he really, I mean, Chuck seemed like he was doing fine. It depends on how Jimmy, especially if to. it looks like it was an accident. If it looks like, oh, that that's weird. The lights were on, but then he put that. Then he must have been using that lantern again. I did know about that. Could I have potentially gotten a lantern? But Chuck hated him so much. I don't know if he really would be able to say that this is one hundred percent my fault. What happened? Well, that's why I would be interested to see the conversations between Howard and Jimmy when emotions are at the highest, between uh, Kim and Jimmy when emotions are at their highest, because whether or not he blames himself directly, and I think he will, considering everything we just saw him go through, if we pick up right where we left off, because he is the kind of guy who feels like he causes these problems. It is him who is running and damaging people's lives, and he had that conversation with Chuck where Chuck said that, that your behavior causes pain. It causes hurt. It causes damage. He directly told him you are the causal agent for pain in people's lives. And Jimmy knows that he screwed Chuck over. He knows it. So whether or not he can hang his hat on, yeah, the lights were on. Oh, yeah, it seemed fine. Yeah, he told me he didn't really care about me. I think the truth is Jimmy knows that he caused Chuck pain. Chuck told him that your actions hurt people. And now we're seeing perhaps direct evidence of that. If Jimmy goes to therapy, if he's really mature about this, if he is able to take a step back and process all of this, he'll be able to say, listen, you had a mentally ill brother. He pushed you in the mental illness. You probably had PTSD or something there uh, akin to that from dealing with his his illness. And so maybe you aren't fully to blame for what happened. You shouldn't take responsibility. He could get through therapy and really not take that on. But I think if you leave him in the wild, I don't see why he wouldn't blame himself. I mean, Chuck told him the that the pain that is caused by your actions is your fault. So I don't see how Jimmy wouldn't make that causal connection when the guy who then takes his own life uh, is directly like, yeah, if if it doesn't come off as a suicide, maybe he won't feel that way, but he'll probably feel like I should have listened to Rebecca. I should have been there for right. him regardless of what he said to Rebecca's me. Rebecca's big. And then maybe she shows back up if there's like Chuck's funeral and she says, Jimmy, right. why didn't you just, I told you that he needed you and you didn't listen. How could you do this, Jimmy? Yeah, and then Rebecca is the one who frames that in the context of mental illness. And Rebecca is the one who basically says, no matter what he did to you, he's mentally ill, and he needs you to put that aside and think of the illness doing that, not the person, and love the person that's behind the illness. And I know, uh, I just know, I mean, I know from personal experience that these conditions that people suffer that are not representative of who they are as people cause the people around them great pain. You do blame yourself. You do take responsibility. Uh, you do take all of those things on, whether or not you're smart or not, whether or not you're intelligent about emotional uh, elements or not. Like, you can't help but blame yourself in these moments. And it is only through time and therapy and discussing them and self analysis that you can get past them. But in the immediate aftermath, oh, for sure, he's going to blame himself, for sure. I want to talk about the Kim side of it because we saw her in this episode where she uh, was getting pushed by Francesca to get 
back to work quicker. Ultimately, she rejects that. She wants to go to Blockbuster Video, which is a place where people used to get video cassettes and DVDs to watch at their home. And she just gets like a stack of movies and ultimately just is like uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off now at this point. Netflix and chill. Which is a movie that you could have gotten at Blockbuster Video. That is true. Uh, man, those were the days, Rob. Those were the days. Uh, man, I, it made me very nostalgic to see, to see a blockbuster there. Good on Better Call Saul. They, did, they had a segue uh, in, in an earlier episode. They, they have the flip phones constantly. I like how they locate themselves. It's really fun to see. But man, blockbuster hit my feels almost as much as Chuck did. That was a, that was a haven for me in the days before Netflix mm-hmm. and online streaming. So yeah, Kim just wants to Netflix and chill. She needs this. She really needs this break. And I really like how Francesca is shown to be very on top of things. We show she goes to Fran- Francesca shows up to Kim and says, I did all these things. I canceled your appointment. Uh, and by the way, I think I found a way that if you give it about a week, I think you can still do the Gatwood thing and we can still pull that off. And yeah, we can still do the Utah thing for Mesa Verde. And Kim thinks about it for a second. She really ponders it for a little bit. And then she's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to Blockbuster and I'm just going to start binge watching some of my favorite movies over and over again. And I'm going to stay in my pajama pants and I'm going to do decadent things like doing cheese on cheese dips and and eat the food that Mr. Gatwood uh, sent me. And that's that. Like, that's all that's going to happen. I'm not going to push it. So I think this is really good self-recognition from Kim that she had pushed herself beyond the brink and that she needs this R&R to really get past uh, the things that she'd done and she doesn't need to jump right back into everything that she had pending. Uh, so I think there's a really the, the amount of self-awareness of Kim here is we don't see that from from Chuck in this episode and we haven't really seen it from Chuck. We do see it a little from Jimmy in this episode. I feel like Jimmy's doing the same things, realizing the things he needs to do to make things right and to move on for him. We see him doing it with the office. We see him doing it with Irene. So we do know that he's on the same course as Kim, as we talked about. These these characters feel like they, they're, on the, they're on the right path and it really does seem like the Chuck thing is going to knock them both off of that path. So I do think it was important to set them on that path uh, so that we can get the max benefit from that. But what do you think that this sets up for Kim? Because it seems like that maybe she is uh, so burnt out, Antonio, she might be falling out of love with being a lawyer. Do you feel like that she might have some sort of a career shift that she may want to do and ultimately get into uh, potentially the, the uh, maybe a Bonnie and Clyde type thing with Jimmy? Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. I love it. It would be fun. Uh, It seems a little out of character for Kim, but I feel like that we are at least setting that up of where she's like, oh my God, like uh, being a lawyer all these hours, it's not what I thought. I almost killed people, uh, you know, driving across uh, three lanes. We've seen from last season where they sort of like uh, are very good working together in terms of, uh, you know, pulling off these different scams at the bar. She didn't seem too into that here in this season, but they did work together effectively to take down Chuck when uh, they were in the court case. So is there some collaboration they could be working on? Potentially. Here's what I'll say. Uh, what I liked from Kim and hearing from Kim when she talks about, well, I could turn a, uh, I could turn a local bank into a regional bank. Like that's what I'm really doing as a lawyer. And I think that that's a quandary or that is a wake-up call that so many who choose a legal profession ultimately feel. You, A lot of people get into it with the right intentions, 
and you get into a profession where you realize like the majority of the work has nothing to do with that. And if you even are doing work as a lawyer on a day-to-day basis that you feel like is quote unquote positive at best, you're chipping away at best. You're chipping away at a, at a rock that you're never going to be able to carve into anything that is a legacy that you're throwing water balloons on house fires, you're putting Band-Aids on tumors, you're not curing underlying causes, you're providing symptomatic relief at best as a lawyer. And for her, she's not even doing that. She's not even doing quote-unquote good. All she's doing is helping a bank expand. And I think there is some soul-searching that she's undergoing that might lead her away from the law. Does that lead her into a life of crime? I don't know. It, does that does that get juiced or goosed by what happens with Chuck? Uh, is she somebody who's already thinking perhaps negatively about the law in general? And then when she realizes that her being a lawyer ultimately pushed this guy perhaps to suicide, she doesn't want any part of being a lawyer and she's going to break bad as a result. That's an interesting turn for the character. I, I think we can really talk about that more on our feedback show about what we think in, in terms of what we know about Kim for the course of those three seasons. Uh, and whether or not that would make a logical step for the character. But I do think that there is a, there's good, uh, I think you've observed very good reason to believe she may be stepping away from the law. Uh, what direction that steps in, uh, what path that's on, whether it's Primrose or otherwise, I don't think we know. Could yet. it free her up for more time for podcasting? Well, that I know is possible, Rob. That I know is possible. Uh, you're hitting very close to home with that one, my man. Uh, yes, it could. Very much so. Uh, she could. It also could free her up to watch a great show on Fox called Scream Queens, yes. Rob. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> over and over and over again. Uh, is there anything else on the Jimmy and Kim and Chuck uh, side of things from this finale that you want to talk about? Or do you want to talk about uh, what's going on with uh, Nacho and Hector? I didn't. I didn't like that Jimmy was was using Aaron uh, from Davis and Maine in his scheme. I wouldn't mind that he would use her without her realizing it. I didn't like that she was in mm-hmm. on it because she was always shown to be a die a stick up her butt like uh, like dyed in the wool, detail oriented, perfectly ethical lawyer who didn't want to undergo chicanery just for the benefit of her law firm. That was one hundred percent how she was shown when they needed a hearing date moved up. Jimmy wasn't allowed to give the clerk a freaking beanie baby. Aaron made him throw it in the trash, basically. That's the character that we know her to be. And yet he is able, through no change that we've seen on the show, coerce her into lying, ultimately, and playing a game. She said everything I said was the truth, but she played a con on those old people. Like She was part of a Jimmy McGill con, 100% willingly. And I didn't feel that tracked completely with what they'd established with that character. I did not like that she was in on it. I would have much preferred seeing that Jimmy manipulated and used her rather than her being fully cognizant of what was happening. I felt like that was too out of left field. It didn't work for me. Right. So I I wanted to say that. Does that hurt her credibility or does that make her uh, like liable in any way to be in on one of Jimmy McGill's scams? Yeah, I mean, what have we seen on this show, right? Like, if you lay down with the dogs, you get dirty. Like, I just feel like that is her slipping. That is her rolling around in the mud with Jimmy McGill. And maybe they can get some grist out of that. Like, maybe they can really get some mileage. I don't know how much we're going to go back to Davis and Maine or Aaron. I think she's on the show because they did that thing they do where they like using people that they really liked as much as possible when they think it fits the story and they can bring a character in that they've already used before. They want to do it whenever possible. 
possible. So I think that she's there for that reason. Whether or not we see more out of her, I don't know. Like, I, I know they really like her, so if they can get her, maybe we are going to get something more with Davis in Maine. Maybe Kim goes to work for Davis in Maine. Uh, Kim also recommended Schweikert and Coakley to Gatwood. I don't know if you caught that. So she still thinks very highly of the firm that she almost joined. She did not recommend uh, HHM for that guy. So uh, that's probably because she didn't want Kevin from uh, from Mesa Verde to hear that she sent his buddy back to HHM because he's got negative thoughts about them. But uh, I don't know. Some people, I think, have speculated that Kim could end up back with Howard if that brings uh, Davis and Maine back into the storyline because Kim ends up working on Sandpiper. I don't know. Uh, but that it certainly feels like this show is a show that that tells us or, or leads us to believe that if you're a morally upright character and you give in to Jimmy McGill, it will ultimately be to your downfall. And whether that's with Kim, whether that's with Chuck, or whether that's with someone like Aaron, we have seen that play out on this show. So it wouldn't shock me if they, if they were able to get some more mileage out of that. Because in the moment, it did not feel earned to me. It didn't feel natural, and it felt out of character for what they had established with her. Yeah, and I wonder if we might end up with her back uh, with Howard, because Howard has no link to the storyline without Chuck. I mean, that uh, Chuck was sort of the conduit that we saw a lot of the Howard stuff and if you take him off the board how do we still have Hamlin as a character on the show yeah that's a good observation and uh, I know that they were he was on talking Saul last night he was on Talking Saw last night. Uh, his face was orange and his chest was white. Uh, he was an hmm. interesting. He was presenting an interesting figure. Uh, he looked like the Terminator as usual, but he was also uh, very uh, tanned in certain parts uh, that were presenting to the uh, the audience. So he was there. No Jonathan Banks. We did get Michael Mando as Nacho, which we'll talk about. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good way to bring Howard back into the story. Uh, he might be okay with Kim. I'm not sure how that will end. He might need Kim ultimately uh, in the wake of what happened happens with Chuck, uh, but he might actually blame Kim and he might not welcome her back. So it's hard to say uh, if that's a way to, to, to do that or not, but we could see that um, on something else really quickly here. Uh, what did you think ultimately uh, about, did you, did you catch where Jimmy is? Uh, Jimmy's talking to the ladies in the mall and then there's a train, like a kid's train that mm-hmm. rolls by. Like in, in other words, this is a thing that you started. You can't get out of the way. Uh, I didn't really pick up that as the metaphor there, but uh, certainly that that could work. Did you pick up anything else about that or did you just feel like, oh, there's a train going by? Nothing else. No other significance to that. You know, I always think of the train scene from uh, the uh, final season of Breaking Bad in this universe, but um, th- th- that was uh, the only thing that I was sort of like uh, calling back to. Yeah, it's uh, that was a good point. Like, uh, and that train did lead to uh, an unfortunate uh, incident with uh, Drew Sharp. So, who knows uh, if that is really what happens or not? Uh, but I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and the only other thing that I have about Kim and Jimmy, I just I do think it was interesting. Kim's first words to Jimmy when Jimmy shows up at the hospital are, "I know." Jimmy then picks up Kim's papers, very much like his community service throughout the season. Uh, he's helping her get that back together. When she wakes up and she's starting to eat and she won't let Jimmy feed her, she says, like, Jimmy, I crossed three lanes of traffic. I don't remember. I could have killed someone. And Jimmy says, yeah, you could have killed yourself. 
and Jimmy blames himself. He's basically saying, like, it's my fault. And Kim is saying, no, this was my choice. I got into that car. So you see what happens. An incident happens with Kim. Even though Kim is telling Jimmy it's her fault, Jimmy's blaming himself for what's happening. He's basically saying, you were only pushing yourself so hard because of everything I had done. So he is taking responsibility, and he's basically saying, you could have killed yourself because of me. I don't see how the guy who feels that way about this incident with Kim is not going to blame himself for what happens with Chuck. Yeah, I also noticed that Francesca said uh, a similar line about that road where she says people die on that road all the time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Antonio. Is that a callback or a call ahead to Breaking Bad? That I'm I'm not sure about. I didn't catch that because I just don't know. I don't remember the dead man's curve right there or if there's a particular significance to that road. If that is something that we've missed or if there's something uh, to hit there, we'd love to hear about it for our feedback show. Okay. Before we get into talking about what's going on with uh, Gus and Hector and Nacho, let me just quickly uh, take a moment and thank our friends over at True Car. Because when you're looking to buy a car, and Kim Wexler is going to certainly be in the market for a new car, I would think, right? <laughs> yeah, it sure seems like it. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, she's going to want to get real pricing on actual inventory when she's looking at those cars. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's not the case. People configure a car online. People configured cars online in 2003, right? They had that, I right? I think so. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure, for sure. And certainly now. And then they find out that that car is not available. But with TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory, not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from the actual dealer and not just any dealer. And uh, not one of these like uh, Hector Salamanca uh, type guys. We're talking about a, a car dealer, uh, a TrueCar certified dealer. Uh, this is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you competitive market price with True car you'll easily find the car that you want and with true car it will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for so now you'll know what a fair price is over three million cars have been sold to true car users by the true car certified dealer network and true car users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with true car certified dealers so true car users will also save an average of over three thousand dollars off of msrp so when you're ready to buy visit true car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience some people Features are not available in all states. All right. So Hector is down, uh, but not out. Is Hector now in the wheelchair at the start of season four? It seems like uh, that could be a very good possibility. We don't know what leads him into the wheelchair ultimately. uh, And he's unable to speak. He loses his voice completely from this incident. So is it this incident? Is it a heart attack? Is it cardiac arrest that leads to uh, oxygen loss in the brain that causes him to not be able to speak and uh, need to be in a wheelchair and taking care of himself? That seems entirely possible. Not the same wheelchair we saw in the free clinic earlier this season, if so. Uh, But uh, it does seem like this could be the incident. Are you interested in seeing multiple incidents, Rob? Are you satisfied with this being the one that puts him in the wheelchair? I mean, how much abuse can this guy take before that? Ultimately, he gets in the wheelchair. I mean, this isn't it. This isn't it. He's going to recover from this and then they're going to do something else to him. Yeah, that would uh, that would be that would be perfect. That would be a perfect summary of Hector Salamanca. You can't, it's like a cockroach. He's like Hector Cucaracha. Like you can't kill this guy. You can't keep him down. Uh, I don't know that I, for me. Like we don't need to see this. This isn't like naked. Even though we had a hot mic moment, it isn't the naked <laughs> gun with like Nordberg where we're just going to continue to uh, punish Hector. OJ's going to get him. 
when, <laughs> uh, I realize now the error of my ways in referencing that character from The Naked Gun. I apologize, and uh, I rescind all references. No, it. Uh, yeah, this could be. Uh, this could be bad. Like, uh, we just. Uh, the only part that I would struggle with is it. it Gus Fring has always said a bullet to the head is too humane for this guy. Gus is the one that has the real beef with this guy. And is it the best uh, backstory for Breaking Bad that it wasn't Gus that put him in the wheelchair? It was actually this pill swap. I, I don't mind it. And, and I think we could, we're going to talk about, I'm sure, the potential connection between Gus and Nacho and where that might lead. But it, it just feels like this is a character who doesn't exist in Breaking Bad being the one who ultimately is responsible for putting him in the wheelchair. That's the part where I feel like, eh, could they maybe have done something more direct about this or Gus tortured him but didn't kill him? I don't know. What did you think of the fact that it was Gus who provided the life-saving technique? Yeah, where they talked about this on Talking Saul, and it was the same sort of idea where Gus wants Hector to ultimately die on his terms. And uh, as Chris Hardwick pointed out, uh, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. So I think he just wants to keep Hector around to toy with him, although he doesn't really spend a lot of time torturing uh, Hector Salamanca, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, so. I didn't see whether he was giving him CPR. I'm sure Hector would have thought that was torture to get CPR from the chicken brother who Hector has a less. Uh, 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 yeah. Well, so he didn't that might have upset Hector. That would have really upset him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Whether or not uh, whether or not there was mouth to mouth as part of that cardiopulmonary, uh, whether that was going on or not, I don't know. We just saw the chest pump, but uh, Hector would not like that. I think that would be considered for Hector a form of torture to have Gus do that to him. But Gus did save his life, and it is very much a scenario where not on my watch, unless it's by my hand. Like I want you to suffer more than that. So. I wondered if there was a situation where Gus uh, could have put Hector in a, in a worse position as a result of this. But I, it just feels like Hector might have had his actual life saved by Gus. And the, the fascinating part of that, of course, is, as you observe, spoiler alert uh, for Breaking Bad here, with what Chris Hardwick says is, uh, of course, it is Hector who ultimately, and it is Gus's blind spot and hatred for Hector that is ultimately his Achilles heel, that it is his true weakness, that this great kingpin who is omniscient and sees and, and seemingly observes all, it is this blind spot for Hector that takes him down. And Gus Fring probably survives longer in Breaking Bad, maybe even wins in Breaking Bad, if not for this very moment right here, where he chooses to save Hector's life instead of letting him die. And the only reason I think he did that is because he wanted to punish him more later. So it is that it is a desire for bad things that ultimately is what brings Gus Fring down. And I think it's fascinating if this is what puts him in the wheelchair to see it tracked all the way back to this. He could have had a dead Hector Salamanca now twice. He could have let Mike take him out. He could have let him die right here in, in a very believable way that would not have caused him any real blowback. And yet here we are. But Antonio, I think that this has to be where we end up with Hector in the wheelchair. We spent so much time setting up uh, Chekhov's nachos, uh, Hector's pills. We spent, <laughs> I mean, easily, I mean, this was three episodes of this plan that we we're going to go, okay, we're going to get the pills from Price. We're going to practice throwing them in there. We saw two different times when Hector had to take the pills. So this has to be it. We can't have this be like, oh, no, it's just like, uh, he's he's not in a wheelchair. He's just, uh, you know, he had a little bit of a setback. He's back on his feet. 
I agree, but they're playing the watch the birdie game with Jimmy and Kim where Jimmy slips and then he's back and then he's better and then he's not as bad and he's still a good guy and he still has humanity and then Kim is the same. They're playing that kind of game, uh, which I would use a uh, color descriptor uh, to uh, and a description of something used in a sporting event uh, to to describe this uh, this constant tease mm-hmm. that is happening mm-hmm. here. Uh, so maybe they're, they're interested in doing that with Hector too. That's the part that's probably I find most frustrating about better call Saul is I just feel like right now they don't know how long they're going to continue to make the show and until they're sure of it they have not put their feet firmly on the ground in terms of the direction they're going in now in terms of this storyline okay we introduced Gus we introduced Hector last season we probably have Hector in the wheelchair after this point Mike is working for Gus we were talking about this last week I don't know how much more there is to do on this side in terms of what? Uh, in terms of Nacho? In, terms, in of terms of where we need to be for the Breaking Bad universe. Like, I kind of feel like the stage is set over here. In many ways, I think that is true. I think what, we, what we're what we looking for uh, out of Gus Fring, what I want as a viewer, we, we hinted at, we teased around the edges of, with Mike meeting with Lydia, with seeing Madrigal, with Gus already looking at the, the laundry, uh, and with Gus being so already omniscient about things that are going on, we still don't have the fleshed out backstory of Gus Fring. We don't know the true breadth and width of his empire. We, we, we found out this season about the free clinic. We found out uh, this season about uh, him doing these things with the fire station. We already knew he was a, a philanthropist and a community leader, but I'm not sure we really truly understand Gus Fring yet. And so the part that we need to tell about Gus's story, it's harder to tell in real time for that reason, because I think we need a lot more backstory out of Gus Fring than forward story. The nacho stuff, I think there is some there's some mileage there. The things that Mike and Gus can do to get Gus into the position that he's in in Breaking Bad, uh, I think we can see. Like I said, we don't even know right now. Is Gus just having the cartel cook his product and he's waiting to find the right cook to execute the checkmate move against the cartel that we see in Breaking Bad? Uh, and we know he finds that cook in Breaking Bad. So I just don't know what we need to do to get Gus to where he is five full years later, Rob. So this is another storyline that could easily be serviced by a time jump. I just want to make sure we get more of his backstory in the episodes to come with him. But what did you make about the the, the, the Gus and Nacho stuff? Nacho obviously shows up intending to kill Hector because the things don't go well between Nacho's dad uh, and Hector like anyone thought they ever would. Uh, but then it turns out there's actually a meet that's happening. And in that meet, Hector, of course, shorts out because of everything that happens with Bolsa and Gus and then it seems like everything has worked so perfectly for Nacho the pills literally fall at his feet and it make it makes it so easy for him to switch them back uh, which interestingly enough he must have had the pills to switch back on him at a time when he intended to kill him I guess so he could switch him back then but no it seems like Gus is on to this right Oh, yeah. I mean, Gus is giving him a look and there's a good screenshot of this on Reddit today where he definitely suspects something is going on. You referred to Gus as almost omniscient where that he seems to have a sixth sense about these things about he knows when something is up. So uh, that he has given Nacho these looks earlier in the season. There was a scene at Los Poyos Hermanos where uh, like there was like, do they know each other? What's going on there? So 
it feels like that Nacho is going to be a part of the Gus storyline. And I mean, Nacho has been a key figure on the show since season one. So I feel like that at some point, his you know, continued involvement in the show is going to, uh, you know, make him into a really central figure. Yeah. And Gus would certainly be a way to do that. Uh, the concern, of course, on that front then becomes that we don't see Nacho in Breaking Bad. So um, does that does he do, do his run ins with Gus and whatever there they could build into that? Do they ultimately lead to his demise would be a major question mark. I think the other question mark on the table that people would want to talk about. Do you feel like it's possible that Gus knows because Mike told him? I don't think that that would have happened off screen. I agree completely. I agree completely. Uh, and there's no way I don't think I to mean, go back and show I mean, it would have been a good that. way to get me in the show, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe you shouldn't spend so much time with Anita, Mike, or whatever is going on there. Mm-hmm. Maybe you shouldn't be spending Anita, so much time with Anita, a new Kate. agent, is what I need. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think I've seen some speculation about that. Like you, I think it would have happened on screen, not off. Uh, and I don't think there's a way to go back and show that in a, in a kind of meaningful way. That feels like a retcon uh, of sorts. To like, oh yeah, and then it was turned out it was Mike that told him. Uh, it's much better that we don't really know fully how Gus knows. Uh, maybe he was having all of Salamanca's people followed. Maybe it's as simple as that. And maybe he through following that knows that uh, he met with Price, who is a drug uh, supplier, and that in meeting with Price, uh, he probably acquired some pills and maybe he spiked the pills. Like maybe he was able to figure all of that just by tracking all of uh, Salamanca's people. That seems like a normal explanation for me. You know, uh, just to put this out there also, uh, Nacho is really great on the show. That I don't know if we've uh, done enough justice talking about him, but uh, the scenes with him and his dad, you know, that I think that they're really really is uh, an emotional hook there with all of his uh, storyline, especially in the second half of uh, season three, really where Mike has sort of been, uh, you know, off God knows where Nacho has really become the face of that side of the story. Yeah, he has. And uh, Michael Mando is great. Uh, not a native Spanish speaker, I've learned. He's French Canadian uh, mm-hmm. and had to, had to learn how to speak Spanish. So he's really uh, doing so much great work uh, for sure. And I, I feel like a larger criticism of this show uh, has to do with the structure of season three and how Nacho doesn't show up till uh, the sixth episode and how he really is a second half of the season character. And we did get a great culmination of all of that uh, with what happens here. His plan works out perfectly. But uh, I think we we need more nacho on this show. Uh, I just love. I, I still love uh, what you said. Chekhov's nachos. I'm still thinking about that. It made me hungry. <laughs> yeah. it made me hungry. Uh, yeah. Kim says that you need to uh, take the cheese nachos and then dip them into more of uh, Chekhov's cheese nachos. Yeah, that seems like a great plan. I'll check that one off the list later. I'm going to go set that one up. Yeah. Keep going with that. Uh, Antonio, is there anything else from this finale that we need to uh, touch on before we uh, set it up to come back and do feedback? No, uh, not from my notes. I, I, I think there are definitely overarching conversations that we'll have about where the show goes from here, what we want, might want out of a season five, how we might want to find our way with these characters. But uh, but yeah, overall, man, the very emotionally impactful finale on the Chuck McGill front. I think a good culmination to the Nacho storyline. The Jimmy and Kim stuff was the only real letdown for me. And I feel like they can make up for that by where they pick up uh, in season five, which we'll talk about. But uh Overall, Rob, I thought this was the best season of Better Call Saul uh, in terms of uh, the the just 
everything that it encompassed, uh, the great scenes, the great montages, the chicanery might be the best episode of the series and the build to mm-hmm. that. Um, the other thing I would say is, and before we, we, we wrap this, uh, if we don't really talk about how fantastic Michael McKean was as Chuck McGill, we're not also doing him uh, the service that he deserves. I thought he was phenomenal uh, in his view has always been. There isn't a lot of nuance to Chuck McGill that he's just playing a bad guy. And I know he has said that throughout, but I felt like he played a bad guy who really was touched and who really was the kind of guy who, yeah, he came off a certain way, but through him, we were able to glean so much about Jimmy McGill, and it, it really added so much to what was doing. So if this is the last we see in, in terms of uh, occupying major storyline time of Chuck McGill, RIP to Chuck McGill because of Michael McKean's fantastic, fantastic performance. Yeah, he did do a great job, and, and Chuck did become you know a central figure of the show, whereas back in season one, we used to talk, oh, let's do our Chuck check. Let's just check in on the one scene. What's going on with crazy Chuck? Is he have a condition? Does he not have a condition? Uh, and they really did, especially in this final hour for him, give a humanity to him where I, I really felt the struggle of I, this is bothering me. I know something is wrong with me, but sort of just like the I didn't feel anything when they put the battery in my pocket. Just what is wrong with me and sort of like a hopelessness that he had. Yeah. And it turns out you can't journal your way out of mental illness. Like it doesn't work that way. You can't just keep a rote spreadsheet and fix yourself. And I think the the tragedy of Chuck McGill and of course the character arc of Chuck McGill is that, as I've said, and as we've said, and as he said, like this is a guy who based his entire well-being and his entire identity around the power of his mind. And it was his mind that failed him. And when faced with that, uh, he tried to mind his way through it. And there was just no way Way to fix that. And I think that that's an, an incredibly tragic uh, end for Chuck McGill. It really was an impactful one. And you're right. We, we were talking about, I think we laugh if we went back and listened to our season one podcast with our Chuck check, how much we didn't care about Chuck and how much we've been saying F Chuck all along and how much we wanted Chuck to die at certain points. And yet I think they found a way to make this really impactful and to make this seem like it was when it, when it comes down to it, this is not Chuck dying. Uh, because of uh, short out or because of some incident that pushed him beyond the brink. This was a suicide. This was him willfully kicking that lamp off of the desk. And when you frame it that way, um, it's a horrible end and a tragic end for the character. And I think Michael McKean was brilliant uh, in bringing everything he brought to Chuck. So uh, two thumbs up for that. And uh, I will toast my Chekhov's nachos to, uh, to Chuck McGill tonight. To you, Chuck. Okay. Antonio, what's the hashtag today? Is it not Chekhov's nachos, Rob? Do you have any suggestions? Uh, Either that or Hector Cucaracha, that uh, either one. (laughs) He really is. You can't kill that guy. You can't keep him down. I like Chekhov's nachos. I think there's a lot more potential Easier to spell, I think, also. Yeah, except for Chekhov. I'm not sure if people... Yeah, we can nail that. We'll get that. I mean, if you're a Star Trek fan, I think you could spell Chekhov. Yes, uh, Chekhov's nachos. That's what it is. Okay. All right, Antonio. Well, great job all season long. Of course, it was uh, a pleasure for me to get your insight into everything. And, uh, you know, you have such a good read on all this stuff. And uh, your rewatch, I think, was uh, very uh, instrumental in talking about this season. So uh, kudos to you, Antonio. Thank you, Robin. Kudos to you, my friend. Uh, I'm just trying to keep up, Antonio. 
Well, listen, uh, I, I, I'm trying to keep up, so I appreciate that. This is a show that rewards uh, people trying to keep up. And uh, I really, like, I, I just, I, I relish the opportunity to talk about this show with you on a week-to-week basis. And I look forward to, uh, to wrapping up and to coming back uh, next season. Hopefully, fingers crossed, no renewal yet. So this would be a hell of a way to end the series of Better Call Saul. I'll <laughs> Very dark way. Very dark. Yeah, very dark. Very dark with Jimmy McGill basically as good of a guy as he started the season. No, knowing that he has Saul McGill in him or knowing that he has Saul Goodman in him, but no closer, really. Uh, yeah, this would be a very dark way to get us into Breaking Bad. But I guess that would be in keeping with uh, with Breaking Bad. So, but yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I love the opportunities to talk to. And I'm very thankful to everyone for their feedback and their questions week to week. Uh, we don't do a full feedback show on this, uh, on this podcast. So uh, we don't always get into them, but do know that uh that i read them all and they definitely shape the way i view the show uh and the things that we talk about here on the podcast so thankful to everybody for sending feedback in and look forward to i'm looking forward to receiving that feedback for our feedback show Rob. okay of course uh, you can send in those messages bcs at postshowrecaps.com or postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail uh big thanks to alex kidwell who edited all of our Better Call Saul podcast this season. So a uh, shout out to him. And then, yes. yes. And of course, uh, you can leave us your comments at postshowrecaps.com. And of course, uh, we've got much more coming up on the post show recaps, including all of Fear the Walking Dead. I am talking uh, about uh, House of Cards right now. Uh, Game of Thrones is right around the corner. I'm sure that uh, Antonio and I will be back together uh, for something on the Game of Thrones front, right? It sure seems like at some point this season we're going to put our heads together and talk about Game of Thrones for sure. That'll happen. Uh, and Game of Thrones is a, a show that always leaves these question marks and has possibilities. From a Game of Thrones standpoint, Rob, is it possible that Howard or Jimmy will be considered the uh, perpetrators? If it's not considered a suicide, will they be the suspects in Jimmy's murder? Are we going to have a mystery to solve on Better Call Saul? Boy, um, a mystery. I mean, this seems like that would be real, especially when they didn't do it uh, to have them sort of have to defend themselves against something they didn't do. Uh, feels like a step in the wrong direction. And so does the Jon Snow bit <laughs> where we bring Chuck back to start next season. Wow. So we'll get into all that on our feedback show. We'll see how this plays out. Okay. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening all season long. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.